This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. I will now invite uh, Faith to come up and read God's word to us from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. Faith, please. Today's passage is taken from Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 48. Uh, You can follow along on your Bible so you can see what's projected on the screen. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a coat tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the coat, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the coat? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the coat, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, great to see everybody here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Hey, Father, we pray that you may help us to understand this day in the life of Jesus, and help us to understand who Jesus is and how we should respond to him, and why this day is so important, that for those who do not respond rightly, it's really a tragic day. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever had a day which changes all the days of your life? Have you ever had a day in which your whole life going forward has never been the same? For me, I remember this day, I think it was 1995 in Yochukang Stadium. 
I was playing uh, football for my company against another company. And uh, I still remember the moment quite vividly. The ball was coming. I was tussling with this other guy. I sort of jumped up to try to get the ball. And I landed really awkwardly. And I felt this really terrible pain in my right knee. And I heard this crack. And uh, after that, the rest of my physical days have never really been the same, right? Like even last week, my knee starts hurting. I'll probably need a knee replacement by the time I'm 60 years old. I can't jog or run very well. Now, has it ever happened to you? Have you ever had a day which changes all the days of your life? Well, today we're going to be looking at a day in the life of Jesus. And it's really relevant because that day changes the whole life, not just of one person, but of a whole city. And we also need to learn from what happened that day. Now, within the book of Luke so far, we've been looking at chapter 9, 19. And that actually, as part of the book of Luke, is, is Jesus going towards Jerusalem. That's the way that it's structured within the book of Luke. And so what we've seen recently, over the last few months, is we see Jesus moving from Galilee down towards Jerusalem. Now, there's Jericho, and that's where we are last week, if you remember, right? We were at Jericho. And so we see that Jesus is moving through Jericho towards Jerusalem. And it's really close, right? It's a bit like Pasaris or, or Pongo in relation to where we are today in Haogang, right? And so, passage begins today. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them. Now, what we're going to see now as we progress to this latter part of the book of Luke is that the narrative time slows down, right? It's like what used to be like compressed, you know, comprised of weeks of time now focuses in terms of days. And I think that's because the days and the details are really, really important, right? And that's why the narrative time slows down. And also we're given a lot of geographic structural markers now because I think Luke really wants us to know that what is happening happens to real people in real places in real situations. And so we see that Jesus now approaches Beth Page and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. Now where is that? So if we want to go from Jericho, to Jerusalem, I guess the way you do it is to go through this path, right? You go from the northeast to the west towards Jerusalem. And you'd go through these two towns, which we think are at this region, Bethany and Bethpage, and uh, through this ridge of mountains called the Mount of Olives. Now the Mount of Olives actually is, uh, okay, so this is Jesus coming through here right now, right? As we come to this part of the passage. Well, all this actually is a really tall hill. It's, uh, it looks really tall. I've never been to Israel myself, but I can only see it in the pictures. But you can see it's a pretty tall hill, right? And Jesus would have been going up this ancient Roman road. Looks pretty rugged. Maybe uh, our outing, BDPC outing group could try it one day, right? But as you can see, it's a pretty rugged route. And people today walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's walkable in one day. Apparently, you can walk it within six to seven hours if you're a pretty fit person. But you know, my knee is not very good, so I can't walk very well. But you can walk it in six to seven hours from Jericho to Jerusalem, up this hill. And so Jesus is walking this route now, and he sends them to this village ahead of them. He says, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say the Lord needs it. Now, 
lot of detail here, right? Why is Luke bothering to tell us about this incident? Now it's like Jesus is walking along. Why does he need this coal? Is it because he's a bit tired? He needs like elevator to get up this hill? Why is this here? Well, it tells us something about Jesus, right? I think the purpose is to tell us who Jesus is. How does he know that in this village ahead, there is this coal? And that this cult that's never been ridden, and that the owners will ask this question and eventually release this cult to him. I think first and foremost, no normal human being would have this knowledge, right? I mean, how would a normal human being know that in this village there's actually this cult there, and that the owners are actually going to let you ride it when it's never been ridden before? And so there are four things which seem to have supernatural knowledge that Jesus has. And then the disciples go to this village. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. Now, what we see here is Jesus, right from the beginning of this narrative, seems to have some divine or supernatural foreknowledge of what is going to happen. And that's the first thing we see about Jesus. He has like this divine, God-like foreknowledge and control of events. Because what happens next is that the people actually release this donkey or this colt for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem with. I want us to notice something interesting, right? The reason why they release the colt is because the Lord needs it. Twice we're given this phrase, the Lord needs it. Now, imagine if I have a brand new car. I just bought from the showroom with my $100,000 COE. Just got it home. Some strangers come to my house and say, oh, we need to borrow your car. The Lord needs it. I mean, I'll be like, what on earth is this person talking about, right? What the heck is happening here? Why do the owners of this call respond and say, okay, the Lord needs it. Yeah, sure, you can take it. I think it's because for the ancient Jew, the Lord is not a Lord, it's the Lord needs it, right? And they would remember in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 that the Lord or the King or the Christ would ride into Jerusalem on this donkey. So all the, 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 the clues in the sense of Zechariah chapter 9 are fulfilled here. So rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your King comes to you, victor- righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so, the reason why Jesus needs this donkey or this colt is not because he's tired and he needs a hand going up this steep mountain, but because he is here as the Christ and to fulfill prophecy and to fulfill God's plan, he needs to come into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt. He needs to come, in a sense, in a king's colt, right? The one that has been prophesied in Zechariah. Now, what that means is, as we come then right to the very beginning, even before Jesus comes into Jerusalem, we're given clues about who Jesus is. His very nature is that of God. And in a sense, his title is that of the Christ. He comes to Jerusalem as king. Now, we then see in the next passage that they brought this colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. 
When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So here we see Jesus has moved from the foot of the Mount of Olives in Bethany and Bethpage to the top of the Mount of Olives, right? He's going just before he goes down the road. Yeah, I've never been to Jerusalem, but you can find these pictures on the, on the internet. So coming down from the Mount of Olives, down towards the valley as you go to Jerusalem, it's quite steep, right? right? Okay. I mean, obviously in Jesus' times, they wouldn't have all these walls and roads, but you can imagine Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives and the people are putting their cloaks on the road. Now, why are they doing that? It's a bit like their version of the red carpet treatment. Lah. Okay. Say they don't have red carpets then. So they put their cloaks on the road and Jesus is coming down. What does that mean? It's like they're putting their cloaks for the king, right? They're recognizing that the king has come, the Christ has come, and that's why they put their cloaks there. And with their voices, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God. Now, there's this two moods happening, right? The, the joyfulness of the welcome of Jesus and the praising of God as he comes down from the Mount of Olives. Now, we've seen this word before. We've seen this idea before. Last week, when we looked at Luke chapter 19, remember Zacchaeus? And Zacchaeus was in the sycamore tree, and Jesus says, you know, come down quickly. I need to stay in your house. And so he came down once, and Zacchaeus, what? Welcomed him gladly or joyfully. Exactly the same word. So what we see here is, we see Zacchaeus, we see the crowd, and there are two elements at hand, the praising and the welcoming of God, of Jesus, and the mood of joy and welcome. Now, I want us to think about that for a moment, this idea of joy and the praise of God. Um, in the last week, I was looking at the Westminster Confession, and as Presbyterians, we all are supposed to endorse and agree and subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, if you don't know that, don't Today you do. There's this thing called the Shorter Catechism. And the Shorter Catechism is actually something which was put together to instruct children. It's a, it's a, it's a question and answer, 107 question and answers for children to learn. But obviously we don't do that now because that's our teaching style. I don't think our children and children's church would like 107 question and answers, right? But the Shorter Catechism is very, very famous for the first question, right? What is the chief end of men? What is the chief end of men? The chief end of men, according to the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, that's really interesting, right? Because we always think in terms of our end is just to glorify God full stop or to praise God full stop. But oh, in their wisdom, in their biblical insight, the people who formulated the Westminster Confession of Faith say that it's not just to glorify God or to praise God, but also in our hearts to enjoy Him or to feel glad or rejoice over Him. And that's exactly what we see today, isn't it? The crowd joyfully praise God as Jesus comes. Now this idea of praising God together with the mood of enjoyment or, glory, or gladness is something that is not just found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But also the biblical writers also note that that's what 
our Christian worship should be like. So Jonathan Edwards, a very famous uh, American theologian, said, God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but is being rejoiced in. Or, like C.S. Lewis, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And again, John Piper, the glory of God is magnified when we rejoice in him. And so that's what we see here in the response of the crowd, right? The whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully to praise God in loud voices. And I think that's very important for us because after we are Christians for a while, sometimes we, we feel that, you know, being a Christian is a bit of a drudgery, a bit of a toil, a bit of a, you know, bit of a drag sometimes. And we just think, you know, it's about intellectually coming to Bible study and reading the Word of God. But we forget that actually it's a relationship with Jesus and we are praising Jesus in relationship with Him, and we are enjoying His relationship with us. We, we are glad that He's come into our lives. We are glad that He's come into our world. Now, the passage goes on to say, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles He had seen. Now, this little phrase here, we can easily miss, right? For all the miracles they had seen. It's very important, I think, that it is put here. Because the crowd of disciples didn't praise God for Jesus and were not joyful because they just had this warm, fuzzy feeling because they sang a couple of hymns or sang a couple of Christian songs. They praised God for Jesus joyfully because they had grounds and reasons for praising Jesus because of all the miracles they had seen. Now, this is really important, right? And it ties in very much with what the purpose of Luke is. The purpose of Luke was that he wrote so that we may know the certainty of things that you have been taught. And so he wants us to know for certain that the response to Jesus as God and as Christ, in joy and praising God, had a basis to it, had a grounds to it, because they had seen the miracles that Jesus had done. And this is really important because our faith, our response to God cannot be because we just feel something, right? Because, we you know, we have this feeling about Jesus. So I remember reading this um, illustration from John Piper in a book uh, a while ago. From, uh, I think it's from pastors to scholars or something like that. And you're talking about, imagine if someone came up to you and gave you $10,000. Okay, imagine it's not a scam, right? I, someone actually gave you $10,000. And he said, why do you give me $10,000? I said, I, I know, you look like a really trustworthy person. I have this feeling that you're a really trustworthy person. Would, that, would you feel very praised because of it? Do you think that they are actually glorifying you because you're a really trustworthy person? No, right? Because they have no evidence that you're trustworthy. It's just a feeling that they have. But if they had said, oh, you know, I've known you all my life. You, you know, I've seen you trustworthy in so many things in your life, and therefore I've lent you, or, you know, I've given you $10,000 so that you can keep it in safekeeping for me. I know I can trust you. And that's actually something which is based on reason, right? Based on grounds, based on evidence. And so this is what we're supposed to see here, that the disciples joyfully praise God for Jesus on the grounds and the reasons of the miracles that they had witnessed. Now, the 
passage goes on to say, Blessed is the king, they say, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now this sort of ties up everything we've seen so far, right? Jesus coming in the cult. The cloaks on the ground as he comes down the hill, the Mount of Olives. What they do with the actions, what Jesus does in sitting on the cult, they now praise their voices. Blessed is the King, the Christ who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now what, is they, what do they really mean when they say peace in heaven and glory in the highest? Is it some sort of... Um, just a wish or a hope or a meaningless expression? Why peace in heaven and glory in the highest? Well, I think that this idea of peace is a really important one. It is a result of the right response of the coming of Jesus the King. If we come back to Zechariah chapter 9 again, all the, like the jigsaw puzzles are being fit together, right? Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He's the king, righteous and victorious, riding on the donkey and the colt. Verse 10 says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So the coming of this king on the colt doesn't just end with the coming of the king but it actually ushers in peace, right? real peace to the nations. It's not just an empty wish or a meaningless expression. We know more about this peace because in Luke chapter 1, when Jesus came and John the, uh, John the Baptist came as well, it was said that peace would come as a result of the coming of this king. So it says, And you, my child, will be called the prophet the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord, to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So peace here that Jesus talks about, the peace that Jesus brings is to give peace through knowledge of salvation, through the forgiveness of sins, to take people out of living in darkness, in the shadow of death. Now this is a wonderful day then, because on this day, the king comes to his city, and in his city, for those who receive him, they will receive peace, salvation, forgiveness of sins, save, salvation out of darkness and death. Now this is a great, great day then. Now, I shared about the day which changes the rest of your life. Many of you uh, may know this guy called uh, Joshua Ng. He's a guy who's preached in our church camp before. He's a church staff worker in the University of New South Wales. Some of you may have come from there. His wife is actually Karen Ng. But before she was Karen Ng, she was actually Karen Eisner. Now, for those of you who don't know, Eisner is a Jewish name, right? So one day I visited Karen Eisner's father. He's this old Jewish guy. He loves watching soccer. His TV is like soccer all day long, right? Italian league, British, Spanish league. He's like, some people have news on. He's, he has soccer on 24 hours a day. Anyway, 
he was telling us about how his family came from Hungary. And his family basically was the only part of his family which escaped the, the Nazi Holocaust in, uh, in Hungary. So his father, uh, I guess Mr. Eisner as well, escaped from Hungary and went to Australia. And as a result, that day changed the life of the whole family because every member, every other sibling was killed in the concentration camps in Hungary under Nazis. But his family managed to survive in Australia. So that day, right, that day they chose to escape from Hungary in front of the Nazis and the Germans was the day that changed the rest of his life. But not really, actually. Because a few years ago, I heard that this guy, Mr. Eisner, actually became a Christian. And because he became a Christian, the day that changed the rest of his life was not the day that his father escaped from Hungary, but really the day that he became a Christian. Because the day he became a Christian, he was saved not just for the rest of 80 years, but for the rest of eternity. He had peace, right? He has real peace, the knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sins. He's been rescued out of darkness and in the shadow of death. That's, that's, the, that's the day that really matters, right? In a sense, I mean, as much as the day that his forefather escaped from Hungary matters, but the day that really matters was the day he accepted Jesus Christ. Now the passage then takes a huge turn in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So here we had the disciples receiving and rejoicing over Jesus, and now we have the religious leaders rebuking, rejecting, and refusing to accept Jesus as the King, the Christ. But Jesus says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, the way I understand it is that the stones will cry out in praise, right? So if the people don't praise, creation itself will cry out in praise, right? It's like inanimate objects will, will come out in praise because this day is such a significant day. Now, I want you to imagine the impossible. Singapore wins the Football World Cup. Okay, imagine Singapore wins the Football World Cup one day. The Singapore... Football team, starting 11, comes back first class by Singapore Airways and lands to Changi Airport. And there is complete silence. There is no cheering. There is no praising. There is no clapping. There is nothing. There is something wrong, right, when that happens because how can Singapore win the, the, the World Cup? Okay, that's a miracle in itself. And then the team comes back to Singapore and Changi Airport and there's no one there to welcome them and to cheer them. There is something wrong, right? And so that's what Jesus is saying. It's like the king, the long-expected Messiah has come to his city. If you refuse to praise him, then there's something radically wrong, right? Even the stones will cry out in praise of Jesus. Jesus goes on to say, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. So we see now that Jesus has moved 
from the top of the Mount Olives, he's made his journey down the hill and he's getting close to the temple. But as he comes, the mood changes, right? People are rejoicing, people are happy, people are praising God, but Jesus weeps. Now, the word weeping here is not like no one or two tears falling down your face. Like in my wife's Korean drama, I see people weeping all the time, right? But it's the idea of sobbing and wailing, right? We've seen this word before in the other Gospels. When Mary's brother died, right, she wept. She was sobbing. Uh, when Jairus, the synagogue ruler's daughter died, the people were, were wailing and, 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 and they were you know, sobbing. So the idea of weeping here is the idea of great, great sorrow because some great tragedy or catastrophe has happened. Right? It's like something really awful has happened. Earthquake in Syria, Turkey, right? People wail and, and weep. That's the a, that's a scale of the, the weeping, right? So why does Jesus weep? Well, Jesus weeps. It shows something about him. He really is compassionate and cares. But he weeps because on this day, if, right, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, this really important word again, right? If you had known this peace, the salvation, the forgiveness of sins, salvation from darkness and death, if you knew on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and will encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. See, what we have here is a conditional statement, right? If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now, but now, it is hidden from your eyes. It's, you're blind to it. You will not see it anymore. It's like there's no more chances for you. And instead, the days will come where there will be judgment. Now, we may sort of see that this is kind of a bit unfair. or like, surely, don't they get a second chance? And don't people... Aren't they allowed to have second chances? Well, if we remember the responsive reading that we read earlier, Jerusalem, in a sense, had many chances to turn back to God. So Jesus in Luke 13 had said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So in a sense, this supernatural, divine foreknowledge that Jesus has already shown with the cult, he shows with Jerusalem. He knows that in the past, their hearts are hardened against God. They kill the prophets, they kill those who are sent to them. He knows that they are not willing to accept him as Christ and as King. What makes it even worse is what Jesus says right at the very end of this section, right? They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So they ignored the prophets, they ignored the, the, the messengers, they ignored Christ himself, but they ignore God himself in the person of Christ who has come to them to bring them peace. 
So this is why Jesus weeps and why it is so, so tragic for, uh, for the people. Now, the picture that uh, we see here is unfamiliar to us, but it will be very familiar to the people who lived during that time, right? So in a typical Roman siege, apparently you can find these places around the world, if they cannot conquer the city, they will actually surround the settlement with an embank embankment itself, like a wall to stop the people from the city from escaping. So you're kind of like trapped inside the city. And that's why Jesus says, the days will come upon you where your enemy will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in from on every side. So what Jesus is really saying here is that there is no escape, right? Just as the Romans won't allow the people in the siege to escape. So in a sense, because of their failure to recognize Christ and God on that day, there is no escape from the judgment to come. Also, when the Romans decide that uh, they're going to take over your city and destroy your city, uh, they don't mess about, right? They, they, they will totally destroy your city uh, as a warning to all the other places that uh, you don't really want to resist us coming to conquer you. So that's what Jesus says, right? They will dash you to the grounds, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone or another. So here we... We see for the ancient reader, for the ancient hearer of Jesus' words, powerful image, right? You will not escape. You will totally be destroyed because you fail on this day to recognize the coming of God to save you and give you peace. And so, the response of Jerusalem is one of rebuke and rejection in their face of total destruction and death. And so, what we see here really are Two different responses to Jesus and two different res results, right? For the disciples with joy, they praise God because of the miracles that they witness and they receive peace. For Jerusalem, they reject and rebuke the disciples. They reject Jesus as king and the result is total destruction and death and Jesus weeps over them. Now, which of these outcomes is yours? Does Jesus weep over you? Does Jesus weep over your response to him? Because he knows how terrible and catastrophic it is? Or will you respond with joy and to praise God for the coming of Jesus? I remember there was this uh, very famous evangelist who's passed away now. His name was John Chapman. And I remember hearing a sermon of his. And at the end of the sermon, he said, This day is the most important day for you and the rest of eternity. And he said, the reason is because the decision you make today changes your whole life through to eternity. Right? If you turn away from Jesus on this day, right, what he said was, it just makes it in future days easier for you to keep saying no and no to Jesus. And that's terrible. It's tragic, right? It's catastrophic. It is so bad that Jesus, God and Christ, weeps over you for your decision. How much better it would be if you receive Jesus with joy, recognize him for who he is, Christ and God, based on the miracles that he's done, so that you will receive peace, salvation from death, saved from darkness, given the forgiveness of sins. 
Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really want to ask that you help us to, to learn from this one day in history, 2,000 years ago, that Jesus, in fulfillment of your plan, came to daughter Jerusalem, to your city, Zion. He came on a cult. He was king and he was God. And he came to bring peace to all nations. Dear Father, help us to be like those people, to joyfully receive and praise and enjoy Jesus. Help us, for those of us who do not yet know Jesus, to see that Jesus weeps over them, that Jesus weeps over us if we do not receive him. He weeps over us because he knows that the outcome is so tragic and so catastrophic. We pray that we may, we may heed the tears of Jesus and to realize the awfulness of not having peace, not having Jesus. And we pray for each and every one who is here today not to have that terrible outcome come to them, that they may turn to Jesus with joy and to welcome him. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Next, uh, we will now move into a time of discussion. Please turn and discuss the questions on the slide with those next to you as we think through the sermon together. So question number one, why is responding to Jesus such a serious matter? How does it affect all the days to come? And question number two, do I joyfully praise Jesus or does Jesus weep for me? Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.